0: you are listening to leaders and legends a podcast featuring some of indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state our communities and us join us as we discuss their imprint on our history leaders and legends is brought to you by veteran strategies incorporated your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations media relations public outreach crisis communications and digital photography My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, and our friend Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. We're here today with three people who are very close. We're very close with the recently departed Indiana legend and longtime Senator Birch Bayh. A few weeks ago, we posted a podcast that was a Luger retrospective. So today we uh, pay tribute to one of the true giants of Indiana politics and government. And we're going to go through and let our guests introduce themselves, starting with Uh,
1: Nancy Pappas.
0: And what's your association? Just very quickly, when did you meet the Senator what did you work for him
1: uh i started working for him in 1965 as a summer intern and then after i graduated from college in 67 i went to work for him full-time in washington and uh, came back for the 68 campaign and between 68 and 74 became the office manager uh, but went off the payroll in uh, campaign years to do campaign work for him
0: that's a common occurrence yeah <laughs> bob? my name
2: is bob blameyer i started uh Volunteering for the senator as a freshman in college at George Washington University. In fact, the first person I saw in the office was Nancy Pappas. Oh, really? Um, Yep, and I bounced around, did a lot of tasks, eventually drove the senator. That's when we first started getting close, and later became his office manager. Uh, I traveled the campaign with him in 1974. I ended up being his political director. For the last three years, he was in office, Um, and I recently uh, published his biography from uh, Indiana University Press, just released it on May 1st.
0: Oh, congratulations, congratulations. And I believe, I hate to say this, is Senator Louis Mayhern our first two-time guest? Mm-hmm. So famous two-timer, Louis Mayhern, <laughs> is up next. I like
3: it. <laughs> yeah, I'm Louis Mayhern. Um, I first, um, I, the first uh, interaction I had with Birch Bayh was, I was uh, about two days past 21 when I voted for him absentee uh, from the field when I was in the Marines 1962. I first met Birch by, I guess, maybe in the mid-1960s. I was had been elected a precinct committeeman in 66. Um, and then uh, I was on Andy Jacobs' staff from 68 until 72 when he lost uh, to Bill Hudnut. And then I went, it was in D.C., and I went from the the House side to the Senate side, and then was on uh, Senator By's staff until March of uh, seventy six. Uh, Bob, I let's start with
0: none of them. Are, none of us ever forgot when he joined us. <laughs> when he <joined> us. <laughs> since you wrote the biography, let's take a few minutes, Bob, talk about Birch by as a kid, as a college student. What drove him to public service?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, he was born in Terre Haute uh, and uh, grew up with, with uh, a father who was very much involved in public education uh, he refer- actually was also a basketball referee and refereed more high school championship basketball games than anyone in our history really and, and uh when birch was 10 11 12 years old they his father got hired by the Washington DC public school system to run their sports and they moved to washington when he was 12 his mother passed away and so his father moved the Birch and, and his sister and himself back to uh, Shirkyville to live with the grandparents and, on their farm in Shirkyville, and his father went into the service. And so he grew up really on the farm and learned to love farming. Um, he, there was a, a, a close friend of his father's who took him sort of under his wing, like a mentor, a, a guy by the name of Jake Maling, who ended up taking Birch to see Purdue taken him to see his, his fraternity, ATO, and Birch ended up going to Purdue and becoming an ATO. Um, he, you know, he was, he was active in 4-H and a lot of organizations. Uh, they were poli-
0: typical back then. They yeah. were very popular, very very uh, uh, much a mentoring. There
2: was no politics in their life, though. None. I mean, it was, it was, that came
0: later, really. And what was his first political gig?
2: Well, he we ran, ran for uh, president of ATO. I knew that and, and was the only one elected for two years, as, as at least he told me, whether it's true or not <laughs> or not. Um, you know, president of a senior class. I mean, he was very active in student politics, both high school and college. Um, he did some pretty remarkable things when he was in the service post-World War II, went to Germany. And ended up, you know, they, there was a lot of starvation going on in post-war That's Germany. Right. That's right. And he ended up getting seeds sent over from Indiana and teaching people how to grow vegetables. An article that got featured in Reader's Digest at the time uh, called GI Ambassador. And he got a lot of notoriety for that while at Purdue. What do you think drove
0: him to run for public office?
2: I think, I think he had a commitment to public service when he met his wife, Marvella she was probably more driven along those lines than he was. And now a lot of people I've interviewed over these years have said if it had been a different era, she very well might have been the senator instead of him.
0: And it's not uncommon for the wives of the spouses to really push, like, run, run, you can do it. This well, the is guy exactly- Jake
2: Maley I mentioned to you, his brother was the majority le- minority leader in the House, the Indiana General Assembly, also from Terre Haute. And so they ran in three member districts. And Birch had a good reputation. His father had a wide reputation, and everyone liked, liked the Colonel, Colonel By. And so Birch agreed to run in a three-member district with mailing in Terre Haute for the state legislature. Did he enjoy that his time, time in the
0: Indiana General Assembly? He loved it.
2: Loved it. Talks about it in glowing terms. Tells great stories from the legislature. He said he sort of feels like he learned everything that he took with
0: him later. So let's jump, let's jump ahead. Obviously, there's a lot to cover, and we want to get everyone involved, but it's 1962. He decides to run against a three term Republican senator whose name is? Homer Capehart. Who, and it's funny, too, because in the movie 13 Days, the race is mentioned. Bye's got no chance, or buy's going to lose, or something like that. It was a pretty good Democratic year, uh, coming off the Cuban Missile Crisis that was happening almost concurrent with the election. But it was a very famous, uh, a very famous, and a very close election. And I don't know if I have my history exactly right, but I think it's the two vote per precinct. Election or something like that, Bob. Talk about that, then Louis. Jump in. Well,
2: yeah, yeah he, he 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 would be the first to acknowledge that if the Cuban Missile Crisis hadn't turned out the way it did, he wouldn't have won. When he said, when Black Monday came and the announcement of the, of the missiles in Cuba, they felt it was over. cape Hart had been calling for an invasion of Cuba long before they knew about the missile crisis, and so there was a lot of confidence that he K. Park could coast to victory. And Burt said he it to a lot of people who wanted to stood by him and wanted to make sure that they continued to raise money, continued to get him on television. They bought time for half hour telethons where he would just talk live to call in, to callers. And it had never really been done here before. And he kept campaigning in that manner and ended up winning by 10,000 votes, which is really just more,
0: a little bit more than one vote per precinct. Louis, were you someone who was drawn to him? because of that election that a democrat could unseat who was a, someone who was a very popular very important republican senator for 18
3: years uh well i was in the marines uh when he was elected the first time in 1962 uh i mean my i can remember my mom writing letters to me uh about birch by and how exciting the election was and and all that and uh and then, uh, I think it was maybe just, he gets elected in 62, and then in 63, I think it was, whenever his birthday was, uh, they had a big fundraiser at the Cadle Tabernacle, uh, which was a, a, a venue here in downtown Indianapolis, it's no longer there. Uh, and, and they were passing out recordings, or my parents purchased a recording or something like that, of Hey, Look Him Over, you know, the, his, his theme song. And, uh, they <laughs> the sent good it old days, man. And, and they, and they mailed it to me. Uh, but there was nobody, but this time I was overseas and there was absolutely nobody in my platoon who had a 45 record player. <laughs> 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 and so I I don't think I got to listen to that thing until I was discharged. <laughs> Nancy, what, what
0: drew you to him? We were saying all fair, uh, my mother was born here, and then she, my mother went in the Marine Corps. She was the first Marine Corps recruit in Indianapolis, a female, after World War II. And she I remember being a little kid, and she just worshipped, just thought he was the, the beau ideal of a public servant. Is that, what was it that made you think, this is a guy I want to work both with and for?
1: Well, in that era, when Jack Kennedy got elected, there was a generational change at the highest level of our government. And Jack Kennedy asked everybody, uh, asked not what you can do for your country, but what you uh, or ask what you can do for your country." And that inspired so many young people. Here was somebody they could identify with, was closer to their age. My parents were young Democrats and worked very hard for Birch by in Hamilton County, uh, which was uh, at least as Republican then as it is now. <laughs> and um, they won their precinct by two by two votes. Uh, for Birch Bay, and uh, and we all worked very hard, went door to door, and passed out flyers, and raised money, and went to the airport rally that Jack Kennedy came in for, uh, for Birch Bay, and uh, so young people responded, and I I was one of those. My parents said... uh, Birch Bay and Marvella were the Jack and Jackie Kennedy of Indiana. And, and I heard that before. <laughs> yes.
2: You read stuff around that era, and the word Kennedy-esque keeps getting printed over and over. Well, and remember, yeah. Homer Capehart was an overweight, elderly politician who wore white suits. I mean, he looked like a caricature in many ways. And, and smoked cigars. <laughs> and the man Kennedy hated the most in among his colleagues in the Senate when he served in the Senate.
0: Yeah, because Kennedy and Nixon were good friends when they were both in the Senate. But— let me ask a quick question about one Kennedy, and then I'm going to ask a quick question about another Kennedy. Did did President Kennedy recognize the leadership qualities, the the incredible intelligence and charisma of Birch Bayh after he got in the Senate? I mean, did they continue to be two people who worked together? Obviously, Kennedy gets killed November 22nd of 63, so they're not in D.C. at the same time.
2: Well, they were for 11 months. Yeah. Birch was a senator for eleven months. By the time Kennedy, yeah, but they outside. were. My
0: point was, they weren't. It's not like they worked together for years. But did yeah. they have that connection when Senator By came in? They had a Kennedy's lot of interaction.
2: Like, they watched movies at the White House with the Kennedys. They went to dinner with them, so there was an interaction. I think that he was very much of that whole image and generation that John Kennedy represented, and so I think he did fit in. Plus, he became friendly quickly with Bobby and with Teddy, so there was that camaraderie. But yeah, Marvella in her book, Marvella by writes a lot about the the parties at the White House and watching the movies together.
0: I believe it. I believe it. I think um, the last movie Kennedy watched before he died is, It's a great trivia question. I'm pretty sure it's from Russia with love. Oh, really? Yeah. Because he suggested to the uh, British filmmakers, they asked him what his favorite Bond book was and he said from Russia with love. And so they made that the second Bond movie after uh, Dr. No. At least that's the question I ask at the Golden Ace, and nobody complains when John, I do trivia. You know, uh,
3: Ian Fleming in the whole Bond series got a big bump out of when it came when it became known that John Kennedy read was read those fan. books. It was that's a, right. was a big fan of uh, the Bond series.
0: Speaking of Kennedys, it's a few years later. Is it 64 or 65? Is it 64? 1964. June. Uh, it's also another trivia question I asked at the Golden Ace, If the McGinley's are listening. And that is Senator Birch Bayh saves the life of Senator Ted Kennedy after a plane crash. Literally pulls him out of a burning plane or a plane that it it crashed, had crashed, but significant injuries to Kennedy. Bob, why don't you, since you wrote the book, talk about it. I have it. to tell you,
2: my interesting perspective on that is I used to fly a lot with him. And we, I would joke with him, oh, what are the odds that you're going to go down twice? So, are, uh, and he would talk about the plane crash but i never got the detail i got from him until i interviewed him for the book on this subject and it was fascinating because ted kennedy writes a lot about it in his memoirs and there's differences between the two and we talked about that but one of the most poignant things that came out of the interviews was when he said when they got back to the hospital he called bobby and he said i have some bad news ted and i were in a plane crash and bobby's response was did i lose him too Hmm. Which, which I had never heard prior to that. Um,
0: so where are they flying? Kind of what's, what's the circumstance well, Birch was keynoting the
2: democratic the- state convention in Massachusetts in Springfield for, and it was for Ted Kennedy to serve a full term. He'd finished the unexpired term of his brother. Right. And so Birch was going to keynote the convention, but that same day, the civil rights act of 1964 was passed and it didn't get passed until well into the evening. So the plane that had gone earlier with the families, they needed a second plane to come in and get the senators. And Marvella decided to stick around and fly with her husband. So it was, it was Marvella and Birch Bayh, Ted Kennedy, his chief of staff, Eddie Moss, and the pilot. Moss and the pilot died in the, in the crash.
0: Did that uh, – maybe this is a crazy question, but, I mean, I would assume that that probably fortified some sort of bond between Teddy Kennedy and Birch Bayh? Because he broke his back. Didn't Ted Kennedy he broke, broke, he broke his, his back? Yeah. Was, he had significant right. injuries.
2: And in fact, there are, there are books that – um, Bob Schrum, a consultant, for instance, wrote about it, how no matter what happened between – when Kennedy was visiting Indiana, if, if people were upset with Birch Bayh because he wasn't endorsing Kennedy or whatever, he said Kennedy always gave him a pass. That's as far as – Kennedy was concerned, Birch had a pass. And Joan Kennedy used to come out all the time for campaigns, and she would say the same thing.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. Did, did uh, Birch Bayh get pretty close with Robert Kennedy? And where did Senator Bayh stand in the 1968 election? Nancy, you were there.
1: Yes. Um, well, we had strict instructions on the staff to not take sides in that primary at all. Uh, <laughs> remember, uh, Birch because, was up. Uh, he, Birch he is was, up. He runs against yeah, Ruffles House, House. Yeah. as I recall. Yes and uh and um, uh, you had favorite sons in uh, standing in for uh, for president uh, President Johnson, and uh, you had he had friends and you know he was close to the to the Johnson family uh, and, and to president Johnson and and to the Kennedys as well. so it just was you know, stay stay completely out of it.
0: You want to read a great book on that election. I mean, there's several, but The Year the Dream Died by Jules Whitcover takes you through the whole thing about, about how Robert Kennedy felt guilty that McCarthy beat him to being the anti-war candidate. What was it like to be involved with the senator and be in D.C. just like during that time? I mean, these are these are heady times. Assassination in 63, Civil Rights Act in 64, Voting Rights Act, I think in 65, Lyndon Johnson shellacks Barry Goldwater in 1964 in an absolute landside. 66, the Republicans have this amazing year in the midterms. Now you come to 68. It's the year that everyone talks about all this political and social turmoil. Louis, what was it like to be around at that time, to be involved in politics?
3: I I was very deeply involved in the Robert Kennedy uh, campaign. Um, I went to the airport um, with Mike Riley. Uh, when we picked up the first person to come in, a guy by the name of Gerard Doherty, uh, who was a, a former the former uh, Democratic state chairman in uh, in Massachusetts, and uh, I I was the guy who went over to the printing company and got the petitions printed up uh, for Robert Kennedy to be on the ballot, <clears throat> and recruited people around from around the state to uh, circulate the the petitions. So I was uh, I was very deeply involved in that uh, primary. And then I, I recall very well uh, after Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, we still had the election in the fall when uh, um, Birch by Rand was, was uh, running against uh, Bill Ruckels house. Um, I mean, it, it another was another squeaker. Yeah. The, uh, and then that was also the year when uh, there was, as it was uh, defined later, the police riot in Chicago uh, at the Democratic National Convention. And of course, uh, uh, the assassination, not only of Robert Kennedy, but of Martin Luther King. Uh, I can remember years later uh, when I was in the state Senate, and, and interns would ask me, oh man, 1968, you know, that must have been really exciting. What was that like? And I told them it was horrible. And it, how did it, how it, did
0: Senator it, Biden navigate all of these issues and controversies and battles? Bob?
3: Well,
2: you know, I, I think that's probably the a, a big a question about his whole career. <laughs> because he, he 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 I think he dealt he was never afraid to deal with issues. And I think one of what made us proud to work for him is the way he stood stood his ground on issues that were very unpopular. Uh, whether it was uh, when Lieutenant Callie had the massacre at Mirai oh, yeah. and Birch was the first one to step forward and, and suggest that the the process needed to move forward properly. And when Nixon was sort of pushing his thumb on the scale or things like, you know, whether it was uh, abortion or guns or busing or the various prayer things, in prayer in schools, there was a lot. 68, uh, I'm not able to talk about experiences with Birch too much at 68 because I was still a freshman in college but I was able to meet Robert Kennedy at that year to me, which was totally exciting. And when he
0: was here in April and then
2: in in Washington at at an event at GW, my college, and then went to his announcement in the Senate caucus room. And then when Martin Luther King was assassinated and there was Easter break, I got a flight out of Washington and flew over 14th street when it was on fire. And then we were landing in Chicago, Chicago was on fire. So you felt like the, the world was coming apart. It seems right. Uh, but, yeah, it was a tough year. It was an, an amazing year.
0: Let's talk a little bit. Nancy, I want to ask you, because it goes right to what Bob just said. Much like Senator Luger when we did his podcast, a lot of the – Senator Luger was not afraid to take on the big issues. Neither was Senator Birch by. What was it like to see him at work – when he was fighting for civil rights, lowering the voting age to eighteen, fighting for the ERA, trying to get rid of the Electoral College, uh, doing the Presidential Disability, Title IX—I mean, these are significant land. Whatever you feel about them, one way or the other, I mean, you can't deny their their gravitas. What was it like to see him work on really important things?
1: It, he was he was an an amazing person. He always aspired to. Excellence. He pushed himself. Um, um, He was part of the reason he survived um, the presidential year in 1968. Um, Nixon was very popular in Indiana. He was just great at retail politics. Lee Hamilton probably paid uh, Birch Bayh one of the best compliments. He said he had the best people skills of anybody I, I had ever met. Uh, so he, he was just um, a, a workaholic in that sense. On the campaign trail, uh, he would be at plant gates at 5.30 in the morning, and he'd go until 12, 1 o'clock at night, and he would do that for days and days and days on end, and he'd wear out staff members in the process and we'd have to rotate through, but he was doing it all the time. And, uh, and he, and he approached legislation the same way. He just, he just never gave up, but he, he had an uncommon way to relate to people. Uh, um, most of the Senate, virtually all of the Senate was much older than he was when he got there. And seniority was the, the coin of the realm. Um, but, uh, he had a wonderful way, uh, to, to take input from all sorts of people. He knew uh, he knew how to explain things in a way that, that everybody could relate to, and I think that was one of his many gifts. You
2: know, Robert, when I did the interviews for the book, a recurring theme that I didn't look for but kept coming out in the interviews with staff people throughout this country, all, all sorts of people, was that when they would bring up the politics of an issue, he would keep telling them, I look, I, I can... I can determine the politics i want you to tell me what you think is right and he kept saying that over and over and i the number of people that said that in their accounts to me was kind of startling because yes i had heard it also i mean he really i just believe he felt in his heart of hearts you you're you're here to do what you think is right and hopefully people will support you and return you if they don't well you know i'll find something else to do
0: let me specifically ask you about about Vietnam, I I can't recall off the top of my head if he voted for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. I'm assuming yeah. he did, Only since two every two senators did, oh, since, yeah. yeah. since since yeah. everybody did. Yeah. Basically, right. I didn't think he was one of the few who didn't. Uh, and this can be to one of you or all of you. You can decide. How did his views on Vietnam evolve?
3: I will te- I will tell you a story that. Uh, that By told me one time when we were driving around, I was driving around, and uh, in uh, 1968, I mean, it's it's a tough election coming up, and uh, um, the, the war looms large, and uh, he had been invited down to the White House by Lyndon Johnson uh, to talk about the campaign and talk about you know the race and, and all that, and, uh, and he told me, he says, Birchby or he said, uh, President Johnson told me, uh, that if you want to go out there and be critical of me, it's okay. If you want to be critical of the effort in the war, it's okay. Um, I just want you to get reelected. Um, and, uh, it won't
2: affect our friendship.
3: Yeah, that's right. And then, and then he said that he called in, uh, Marvin Watson, uh, who was uh, an assistant to, uh. Lyndon Johnson, one of the president's assistants, and he told them, uh, Marvin, he says, I want you to take care of Senator By. If he needs a new bridge, if he needs a, <laughs> a, a post office, whatever it is he needs, you take care of it. And uh, and and also, he uh, Birch told me that he offered to make uh, uh, Marvella uh, the vice chair of the uh, National Democratic Party. And uh, Birch said that he thought maybe that was. That's a little too match. (laughs)
2: I do talk about that in the book. The the Marvin Watson story, LBJ, is totally true. Not only that, he he asked for a list of what is important to you. Mm -hmm. And said we went back to the office and we huddled. We came up with a list of, he said, eight or ten bridges, overpasses, (laughs) crossings, dams, reservoirs, whatever. All of them happened. Well, Lyndon
0: Johnson was a former minority leader, or excuse me, majority Majority leader of the Senate. And... uh, knew how things got done and knew how elections won. But he went to Vietnam, and that's,
2: I think that was one of the big changes. He visited there right before the Tet Offensive.
0: Senator Bai did. Yes,
2: he, he, he went to, with Ted Kennedy, actually. He and, and that's Kennedy
0: early 68. Late
2: 67. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they came back just before the Tet Offensive started. Okay. And he's, he, what he found was what, when you talked to the generals, you got, you got the company line. When you talk to the CIA reporters and the lower-level officers out in the field, you got the, the overwhelming sense that this wasn't going to do well.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies Incorporated and sponsored by the Girl Scouts of Central Indiana and our friend Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending. We're talking a little bit about the career and life and times of former Indiana Senator Birch Bayh, who passed away a few months ago just before uh, Senator Richard Lugar did. I'm a – this is going to ruin this podcast, so I guess I'll – but I'll say it anyway. I'm a fan of Richard Nixon in a lot of ways. Get the defibrillator out for Mr. Blameyer. I think he's not – he's not – The devil incarnate, he got what he deserved, I make no excuses for him, but some of the things that he accomplished uh, on the domestic side are extremely liberal, and a lot of things he uh, accomplished on foreign policy, even into the 80s, polls showed that Richard Nixon was the most uh, admired president when it came to foreign relations. Uh, What did Senator Birch Bayh think of Richard Nixon?
1: Well, I think he thought he was a fierce competitor when he when he had to run on the same ticket in 1968. Uh, Birch Bayh set a, a record for ticket splitting that year. People who had voted for Nixon and then crossed over to vote for Birch Bayh. and uh, in in Bob's book, he tells the story about when the senator was working on the twenty uh, on the uh, on the twenty fifth amendment. Uh, Richard Nixon was the most impressive witness he had about presidential succession because President Eisenhower had been uh, temporarily disabled uh, three different times I think it was by heart attacks and uh, and so Richard Nixon had stepped in to take over but there was a real question about whether some of the things he did would even be legal
0: that's exactly right
1: uh, be, because there there was there was no structure to say this is what you do when you have presidential disability
0: well it correct my history here but Roosevelt dies in April of 45. Truman becomes president. There's no vice president until 48 when he chooses Albin Barkley. And then he wins in 48. Eisenhower had a couple of bad heart attacks and a stroke. I think one of the strokes, he's playing golf. So Nixon kind of assumes powers. But to your point, Nancy, that's exactly right. They're like, is this even legal? You know, they, the way had he an does? they
2: had a written agreement. But there's a lot of people that could question if that went to the court, would it stand up? Because it's not in the Constitution. And then in Cost 63,
0: Kennedy gets assassinated. Johnson becomes president. You don't have a vice president until Hubert Humphrey gets elected vice president in 64. So there was this real need. What made Birch Bayh take the lead in, in closing all this drama? Well, if you remember when Kennedy got
2: shot, um, there was an open question. Suppose his body had stayed alive and his body. And his, his, he was totally incapacitated. There was nothing in the Constitution that allowed a transfer of power.
0: In and another ass- little piece of trivia, killing, assassination of the president, she the president, was not a federal crime. So when he, the secret service tried to take his body back to DC, right, the Texas cops wouldn't let him because they said, Texas law says there must perform an autopsy before they leave the jurisdiction. And the secret service people basically take out their guns and say, they took him anyway.
2: We're yeah. taking yeah, right. the president home. <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, sorry, forgive me. Go ahead.
2: No. They, they, so it seemed like this was an incredible gap. Uh, not only that, there had been several vacancies. I think eight times there have been lengthy periods without a vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just seemed logical. Number one, he had just gotten his first subcommittee chairmanship, the subcommittee on constitutional amendments. And there had been proposals and this was the this became his mantra. He he went after that. Think about this. We have a first-term senator that before his first term is up, he's passed a constitutional amendment. There have been 11,000 attempts to amend the constitution in our history. Only 17 since the Bill of Rights have passed. He has two of them.
0: And he would have had three had the era passed
2: or four if direct election had passed yeah, right. I an mean, this...
0: era came very close i mean, yes. it, I mean yeah. you lack of one state you don't think state. about it now nancy because it just it's th- times are different and you, it, you can argue whether it's needed or not needed that's not the point of us being here but but the era was a huge issue in the 70s what was it like to work for the senator who's trying to do all he can to make that
1: happen uh, yeah i was i was um so proud of him for doing that um when I first came to Washington DC to work for him, I was uh, surprised and almost stunned at at the women who were in managerial positions in his in his office. And then it was sometime later that I'd heard that uh, I I didn't call him Colonel By I called him Daddy By uh, had made had, had made Birch By a feminist because when Birch By was was young his dad said he was going to Capitol Hill to testify you know that, that uh, girls ought to have equal sports opportunities with uh, with young men um, and so he'd always been so out there on on women's rights. And I had worked in his Senate office, and then by the time ERA came to the states, I was a lobbyist for the Indiana State Teachers Association, which was very supportive of um, of the Equal Rights Amendment. And it took us uh, several years to get it to get it passed in the state of Indiana, and it was very difficult and uh, stunning because. Um, people in the legislature that Birch Bayh had served with, Democrats, who he was very close to, just could not abide uh, women having equal rights. They were on a pedestal. You're going to lose more rights than you're ever going to gain. And do we really want to do this? And um, it was it was difficult to get over that hump.
0: And how important was Marvella by in that same fight in, in buttressing what Senator Bayh was doing?
1: Well, she'd been denied an opportunity to get into uh, the University of Virginia because she was a woman, and they told her it was because she was a woman. <laughs> and uh, I think when that was ha-
0: this the forties? Uh,
2: oh no, no, no! It would, be, it would be later in the fifties, probably. 50s. Yeah, University of Virginia. went to, go to all,
1: was all male.
2: Yeah, and she went to go, go to graduate school there. She always felt that that's just unfair. They take federal money and yet they treat men and, and women and so differently.
0: Correct me, my history again. Isn't that where Evan By? With the law school there. Went to law school there. Well, yeah. that's a nice little piece of revenge. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't let my
2: mother. And this is the school God. established by Jefferson and Madison. I mean, the, some of the great founders, right. and mm-hmm. yet it was male only.
0: It, of all the things that that Senator By accomplished, the one that's that most is most pervasive in modern culture is Title IX. Mm-hmm. Talk yes. a little bit about
1: that too. Yes. Um, uh, he, you know Bob's got a better better record in his book of how that happened, but it has made such a phenomenal difference uh, in in our culture. Um, uh, you know, w- girls and women were like nine and seven percent, I think, of uh, of law schools and medical schools when Title IX passed, and now they comprise the majority of uh, of college enrollment across right. the, across the country, and that's made a big difference in what their opportunities have been. Then uh, ever ever since then, let the me ask you: It was
2: about sports. It wasn't about sports. It was about educational Education. institutions yeah. must treat men and women the same but on the sports front when it passed there were a quarter million women and girls involved in high school or collegiate sports 1972 10 years later it was 3 million
3: think so, how many think how many gold medals olympic gold medals were won by women. female uh, american athletes uh, because of title nine
0: that's a terrific point uh, before we move on about when we get to 74 i hate to ask this question but But did any of you ever talk, speaking of presidential succession, uh, get a comment from Birch Bayh about Alexander Haig's quote that I'm in charge here? We have the Constitution, (laughs) gentlemen. I'm in charge here. The famous quote by the Secretary of State after Reagan was shot on March 30th, 81.
2: He would say something along the lines of,
0: he's wrong, you know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I think Haig's problem was not only – I mean, he was a four-star general and former chief of staff to Nixon, so I understand what he was trying to do. But it's just when he asserted, what you have here is the Constitution, gentlemen. I'll
2: tell you what I find fascinating about 25th Amendment. It was a,
0: it's a, I wrote it early in the book
2: because it just fascinated me. When we, those of us who were aware of Watergate and what went on, if you remember it, the House was passing in bills of impeachment. And a bunch of senators went down to the White House right. to tell Nixon, basically, you've lost, you've got to go. If there hadn't been the vice presidency filled by Gerald Ford at that point because Agnew had resigned in disgrace and the, under the 25th Amendment, seven years old at the time, Gerald Ford becomes vice president. If right. he wasn't there, the presidency would have passed to the Democratic Speaker of the House. Isn't that Carl Albert? Yes. What are the chances that these senators would have told Nixon he had to step aside if he was turning over the administration to the Democrats?
0: And Nixon thought that Agnew was his trump card right they'll never impeach me because they don't want this nutcase agnew to be to be president of the united states yeah he states. didn't
2: know he was a crook too speaking of
0: <laughs> speaking of jules woodcover uh if you want to read a fascinating book on that relationship it's called strange bedfellows and it's a book about the relationship between nixon and agnew and it's unfathomable in today's society with with media and as it is that 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 agnew could have been vice president they never spoke well, after agnew left said i'm quitting uh, over corruption charges, Nixon never talked to him again, and here he was, a heartbeat away from the presidency. Uh, here at Leaders and Legends, we're talking about Senator Birch career with Nancy Pappas, Bob Blameyer, and our good friend Louis Mayhern. In 1974, it's a phenomenal. It's called the Watergate year for Democrats. They they wipe out swaths of Republican elected officials throughout the country. But in 1974, Birch Bayh runs again, and he runs against Richard Lugar. When I read about that election, it's one of those, it's a shame one of them has to lose elections. And it was another squeaker. It was very close, even in a Democrat year. What was it like to be around Birch Bayh then and that election? And did he feel like any... Remorse isn't the right term, but maybe chagrin that he has to beat Luger of all people. Oh, no.
1: (laughs) I tell a story about... um, He's a pretty competitive dude. Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. Winning
2: winning is pretty important.
1: (laughs) Marvella Bai was back here uh, campaigning in that 74 campaign, and I was driving her to wherever the campaign event was. And uh, she said, you know, she says, I don't know why Birch always has to get such fantastic opponents. Bill Ruckelshaus was formidable. Richard Lugar is so formidable. And I said, well, I said, uh, you know, one way to look at it is um, the Republicans knew they had to come up with a really outstanding candidate uh, because Birchby was going to be so difficult to beat. So it's a really good reflection on him that they've come up with such uh, sterling candidates. She thought about that for a second or two, and she said, I could do with a little less reflection. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did they have a relationship at all
1: at the time? No. no. So I mean, in
0: 74 Luger is, is elected uh, mayor, mayor of Indianapolis in 67 uh, and he runs for Senate in 74 His campaign managed as I recall by Mitch Daniels. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, even though by was in the Senate and Luger was the mayor of the largest of the capital, uh, they didn't have any relationship at all. No,
2: not really. Uh, my relationship—I mean, that for me that year is pretty unique—and I probably write more about it disproportionately because I traveled with him throughout the campaign. I mean, we had three days off in five months. Uh, it was really grueling, and no, there was no real relationship. I mean, we we worked as a staff. You always worked with elected officials, particularly of your major municipalities, and and, and so there was a, that kind of working relationship. Was there a personal relationship? No. Now, did he respect Luger? Yes. Was he concerned about him?
0: Yes. Did you know pretty early that he was going to run for Senate?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And at, at plus, we, we liked the fact that as, as Watergate was unfolding, that he had this reputation mm-hmm. as Nixon's favorite mayor, it, which Luger said to me in my interview with him that really was unfair. It was David Broder had written in an article that he must be, he's down in the White House so often he must be Nixon's favorite mayor. I think Nixon and,
0: said it at the Monument Circle.
2: Yeah, Luger says later he's at a, at a, at a, a ceremony, sitting next to Nixon, and he leaned over to him and says, "You were my favorite member. Well,
0: <laughs> I hate to say this, but I wrote about that in the Star. Oh, did you? I wrote a column when uh, when Richard Luger passed, and and part of the column is about Andy Jacobs and how much they respected each other and liked each other. But right after Greg Ballard's elected, there's an event at Meridian Hills, and Luger's speaking to like 15 of us. Right? It's Jim Morris, Greg Ballard, Teresa Lubbers, Mark Lubbers. You know, kind of a small group of people. And he did a question period, and I just, being an East Sider, you know, you just can't help yourself. And I raised my hand, and I said, Senator, please answer a question for me. Were you Nixon's favorite mayor? And he said that – tells the (laughs) same story. He goes, years later, Nixon comes to the Capitol for some luncheon or something – and they're sitting next to each other, and Nixon just blurts it out. You know, you really were my favorite mayor.
3: <laughs> I think there was an international uh, meeting of mayors, wasn't it, in Indianapolis? It was a, uh, they did have
2: know, have. League of Cities or something yeah. happened here, yeah. 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 I
0: remember that.
2: But. Uh, in, in 74, you talked he, to He knew we beat him over the head with it constantly. I mean, <laughs> we, Remember, Nixon right now is in the middle of the biggest scandal in American history. Well, he, so <laughs> Politically, you
0: should have. I absolutely. Mean, we're realists here at leaders' elections. But... <laughs> uh, you mentioned sixty-two. You don't necessarily think, or or, or Birch Bay didn't necessarily think he would have won without the Cuban Missile Crisis. In seventy-four, do you beat Richard Luger? Or excuse me, yeah, Richard Luger without Watergate. In what a fifty-one forty-nine election yeah, or fifty-two forty-eight? I think it's doubtful. I mean, well, Luger said to me, and I, I, I
2: expect it's true that the his polling was that we were neck and neck, going right up to the Ford pardon. Oh, said the said Ford, Ford pardon Nixon came. in September of seventy-four. The bottom, the bottom well. fell out for them, and and, I think and, it's it's
3: the, and it was the only good year, only good Democratic year that Birch ran it. Ran in.
2: Yeah, right. remember he ran in bad
0: years every time
2: against good it, it, candidates, except
3: seventy-four. Well,
0: sixty-two wasn't a. I mean, the D's had a better than average year for a first for a initial term but midterm because been? of. I
2: mean, the reality is that the first year election after the presidential.
0: Election yeah, is bad right. for the party in power. Yeah. Usually, yes, right. almost in every case, that's and right. And if the
1: Cuban Missile Crisis hadn't turned out the way it did and gave Jack Kennedy such a boost in the that's polls, right. you know, in there, were, there were a number of Democrats elected to the Senate who would not have been elected that year had it not been for that missile crisis.
0: Nancy, what was the temperature of the 74 campaign? Two, two accomplished people, two military men, very bright, uh, you know, Luger of 74 isn't the Luger of, you know, 2012 or whatever year you want to say when he becomes this, this statesman, for lack of a better term. But I'm not I don't necessarily remember that campaign per se in its details. But was it highbrow, lowbrow? How would you say? Was it more negative than positive? I mean, obviously, you're crushing him with Nixon. What were Luger's kind of attack points or or? pushes you know, against I, buy
1: i honestly don't remember but, do you big spender it was always a oh, big spender right right
2: I it, do it was at, birch are, by the big spender yes. the liberal big spender out of touch with the people of indiana um <laughs> over and over and over that's nancy and i were talking earlier there was birch liked to poke fun at that at that image of the, the limousine liberal who's out of touch and, and there was a great event in evansville where both luger and Buyer are there and Birch gives a speech by turning his back to the audience, mussing his hair, turning around and saying, Oh shucks. And then he said he was sitting in his cabin with Marvella and Evan, and, and Marvella was sewing a, fly- a star on the American flag.
1: Yep. <laughs> and Evan was reading his Boy Scout manual. And I
2: started to wait, walk out of the house, and Marvella said, hey, blue eyes. She always calls me blue eyes. <laughs> and the crowd, was, the crowd was just going crazy. Whitcover was there that night, and he wrote. Oh, about, Whitcover. Yeah, to... he wrote about the Richard Nixon. Richard Luger had to learn the hard way to, the mastery of birch by. I mean, he was able to in such a welcoming way, uh, you know, poke fun at himself positively.
0: You never forget your first child, right? For those of us who are parents, uh, so his election in '62 must have just been amazingly uh, satisfying. But is you think in some way '74 was? Maybe one that he cherished more because he took on Luger and won. And now he's, now he's poised to do what he's about to do in 76, which is run for president. How does one lead into the other?
2: I well, uh, the, I would say no. I think 62 was for him. His favorite. For, yeah, I think he, he looked back on that. Because number one, he, he, he felt alone in believing he could win. That everybody everybody he he always has said that I wasn't smart enough to realize I couldn't win <laughs> right and, and he was able to win and the song was important and the missile crisis was probably determinative so seventy four was important and very satisfying but it was so grueling and exhausting because of Luger. uh look I was twenty five years old and my teeth were falling out i mean the the, the the amount of lack of rest and lack of good food and and this Campaign was amazing and but right away people started talking to him about running for president and for a long time He just had a hard time deciding because he was so dog tired
0: in 1976 the The Democrats have a, a pretty big field not 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 rivaling what not they, they have now, yeah. now But but they had a strong field with a lot of really good candidates willing to take on Gerald Ford who had neither been elected President nor vice-president survived a couple of assassination attempts was suffering because of the pardon of Nixon, which I think is in September of seventy four. But, 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 Ford was a smart politician, and was very well respected. What made Birch Bay think he could a win the nomination and then b beat Gerald Ford, Nancy?
1: Well, he um, he was very committed to the issues he was committed to. Uh, and he'd received a lot of national at- attention uh, since that first year he was, he was in the Senate. Um, he was able to navigate the Senate uh, and the national press and difficult elections um, and raise money. He, he just had uh, a lot of gifts. Um, during that campaign, I was by that time working for the Teachers Association, and he'd asked me to go down to South Carolina to their statewide teachers convention and uh, and represent him and i said uh, well uh, is yours going to be the only campaign represented he said oh no he said jimmy carter's going to be there and walter mondale's going to be there and scoop jackson's going to be there i said and nancy pappas <laughs> 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 he said yes he said uh he said you'll you'll do a great job well um when we got down there um he, when i compared all of their records on on education Birch buys was the most outstanding um, uh, record on education of anybody that was there and uh, Jimmy Carter was the only southerner that was there but right. I was I was pleased that you know when you when you laid the facts out there for him Jimmy Carter did win the straw poll that day but birch by came in a strong second uh, because he had a remarkable record record for a relatively young senator in the United States Senate. And people, you know, when you know, they might not have been um cognizant of that and have his name on the tip of their tongue, but when you when you repeated all these things, the heads would start to nod in the audience. So he did have something of a national profile, which I don't think most of us in Indiana really understood. But people had heard of him and they'd heard of the Twenty Fifth Amendment. Um
2: and if you go back a few years, you have to remember uh, right after Nixon got elected, Birch took the leadership on two Supreme Court nominees. Oh, Haynesworth and Carswell. Carswell. This has yeah. never happened before. Mm. Two, two of them opposed, and both are one, and both are led by the same guy. And we learned a lot about the Nixon people in that process. And he became very much opposed to Richard Nixon, philosophically, had nothing to do with personality. And he actually ended up being very friendly with Gerald Ford. He played in the congressional ball games with Ford. They met together in jockstraps in the bowels of the <laughs> RFK Stadium.
0: Yeah, Andy uh, Jacobs would tell those stories. goes, yeah. you're always running into these people naked.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> right, exactly. And and so and and he ended up on Nixon's enemies list. Birch, he did. Yes, in, during Watergate. So there was a there was a great deal of enthusiasm about ending this administration.
0: But what about? Let me ask a question. I'm not necessarily Pavlov in my defense of Nixon, but when it comes to foreign affairs, his record's pretty amazing, considering some of the things he accomplished in the context of the Cold War. Was Senator Bai someone who supported the opening to China, supported the SALT 1 agreement, and sort of the, the detente uh, focus on foreign affairs?
2: My response would
0: be yes, generally but it
2: was the it was the domestic policies where they separated most where he thought they were very divisive sending agnew around and to really dividing people with these these very speeches that agnew would make he he just developed much more of an opposition than he would ever had in his political life mm-hmm. to a, an administration and it, and you can yes you can say they were doing good things here but if you think that the domestic policies are so bad and need to be changed you try to change them.
3: You know, people people forget. Uh, the, right now, the bogeyman is immigration and people flooding over the borders and everything like that. Back in the day, when Birch Bayh was in the Senate, the bogeymen were uh, prayer in school. We need a constitutional mm-hmm. amendment to guarantee prayer in school. We need a constitutional amendment to... Uh, uh, the war, stop, the war stop, in court
0: was the... Stop
3: bussing, you know, and and all all those sorts of things. And uh, those were the things that uh, that the Republican Party and Richard Nixon in particular were using uh, to essentially define Democrats. Democrats are against prayer. Democrats are for disrupting your children's education. Yeah. Uh, he did win
0: 49 states in 1972. How did how did well, sometimes, Senator By react that, to that?
3: Some sometimes those tactics uh, pay off.
0: But how did he react to Nixon's overwhelming landslide in seventy two? Like like incredulous, like I can't simply believe it. No, or,
2: remember we had the opening to China. We had the Russian, uh, you know, Nixon going to Russia. McGovern was not a good candidate, mm-hmm. and I think Birch would be the first one to tell you that he liked George McGovern a lot. Didn't feel that he was a good candidate. Bomber pilot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a lot of characteristics about him that should have been very positive, but Mm -hmm. not the way he allowed himself to be portrayed. So I think that there
0: wasn't a big surprise. Everybody saw it coming. Louis and Bob, did you guys work on the 76 presidential campaign? And why do you think it didn't really take fire?
3: Um, I was in the process of running for the state Senate myself, and so I was kind of preoccupied (laughs) uh, with that. But I did travel one time to... uh, iowa uh, to do some door-to-door um uh, because you know. that
0: was the year the iowa caucuses became the iowa caucuses and they had existed now. for years that's right that's what's interesting
2: in, in many respects they were carter not a suckering big deal. in birch by mo udall scoop jackson sergeant shriver into iowa if they hadn't mm-hmm. gone carter's victory in iowa which really wasn't a victory none of the above won. carter was second but that gave him the bump for new hampshire which wouldn't have existed had had the other candidates not gotten in. But there was this opportunity. They got this this governor of Georgia has been running around the state for a year, mm-hmm. and Birch had organized there previously when he started to run for president, but ended that because his wife got breast cancer, mm-hmm. um, and he felt that he he was Iowa, you know, mm-hmm. it was like Indiana, it was his kind of place. So he wanted to compete there. His problem was he got started very late. We really didn't get started till October of 75.
0: Yeah, because Carter has no job. I mean, he's done being governor in 74, right. and I mean, he's got a, his peanut farm, but I mean, Birch Bay is pretty darn busy.
2: Yeah, and tired from 74, too. Believe me, <laughs> that I know very well.
0: <laughs> so, from 76 or from early 77 until uh, 1980, Richard Luger and Birch Bay are Indiana's United States senators. An incredible gift to Hoosiers. How did they get along and work together? I don't, I cannot recall in Indiana history, and I'm sure maybe there's or in other examples where a junior senator is serving with the senior senator who beat him two years earlier. What was that relationship like, Nancy?
1: I, I don't know. I was off the you staff by, by that there? time. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I was
2: still there. Uh, it's happening in Ohio, too. Glenn Metzenbaum had run against each other and ended up. Oh, uh, that's John right. Glenn and Howard Metzenbaum. Yeah. they didn't get along at all. Uh, you know, we, I think we, we didn't know what to expect when it started. I remember him in December of 76, what are you doing after the session's over and you're getting near the holidays, everybody's dressing casually and you're cleaning up, putting files away, sending stuff up to the attic. And Birch walks through the office, grabs three or four of us say, we're going to go to see Dick Luger. And I think we all said, what? And we went and ended up spending the afternoon sitting, talking with Luger and the staff. It was our
0: first way of... And was Mitch Daniels there as chief of staff at yes,
2: the time? Yes, yes. And, you know, the the idea was, look, we we're both representing Indiana. Let's work together. Their re- relationship, as time went on, got closer and closer, especially when Birch became the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, and Luger was on the Intelligence Committee. And he said there were only... A, he needed to be able to have a few of his colleagues he could rely on to share the secrets he was told by the administration. And Luger was one of the very few that he relied on. And he said nothing ever leaked. He found he could trust him. And they ended up working out, together on a lot of things, and I would say that he genuinely liked him. And Luger introduced the bill to uh, rename the federal building after Birch.
0: Oh, really?
3: And yeah. don't forget, Birch Bayh was the author of FISA. Yes.
0: Well, that's right, the FISA court, the Federal mm. Intelligence Surveillance it's just, it's Act. Said, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. In nineteen, actually, let me say this: When, when Luger died, the, the Star ran the picture of By, like talking into Luger's ear. In the they were that was the committee that investigated Billy Carter. That's right. And I was like, what is he telling? I would always want to like, let's get this guy or let's get, you know, get the hell Carter, done with it. Billy Carter is a good example, though.
2: Mm-hmm. None of us wanted him to do that. I mean, remember he's running for re-election in nineteen eighty. And he's dubbed the chair of the Billy Carter committee investigating the president's brother while he's supposed to be running for reelection.
0: So Billy Carter was under investigation for taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from Libya from Libya. And it was called Billy gate. Yes. Which I guess is an improvement over Billy beer, which is what Billy Carter was marketing. And they were charged with the investigation
2: and he was chairing it. And we hated that. I mean, the staff, those of us in the staff, first of all, you don't want them out of the state. You want him in the state every day. And, and this was again, I give him plaudits. he felt, you know, somebody's going to do it. It's my job.
0: And he stepped up and he did it. And there was a, it was a sacrifice. We talked a little bit earlier about election cycles. He comes up against one of the mother of all Republican election cycles in 1980. His luck holds basically. And he runs against Dan Quayle, a, I would say a relatively unknown um, United States congressman. On second or third district or whatever fourth. I can fourth, fourth district, <laughs> excuse me. Thank you. Uh, and the hostage crisis is happening in Iran. Uh, there's something that's called the misery index was where you take inflation and unemployment and you add it together. And how much do you have? And Carter had given the malaise speech, uh, which he, which he never used the word malaise, but he basically admonished the American people to buck up. And it was a bad time for Democrats all around. And, and (laughs) it's a good time for me, but (laughs) I was 12, but I still remember, does it, uh, what was that election like? How soon did you know you would be running against Dan Quayle and clearly of, of the opponents in the first three elections, maybe it would be fair to say Quayle was the least formidable heading out. I think that's very fair to say myself.
2: We thought for a long time it would be governor Bowen. And Mark felt, Miles
0: talks about that in our podcast. With we Mark felt Miles. good
2: about that because we were seeing polling in the state that was showing at that point Bowen and by neck and neck. And I remember Birch saying that if he's there in the state every day and we're running even now, I'm happy to take him on.
0: Otis Bowen was a very popular two term, right. ending his second term as governor of Indiana.
2: And they worked together well too, by the way, Bi and Bowen. Um, once Bowen said he wasn't running. We quickly felt that it would be quail. Uh, There wasn't anybody else in the delegation that was going to do it. We didn't believe they were going to throw some sacrificial lamb up there. There was going to be a lot of interest in in taking him on. And all the markings for a bad election year were were already there. If you remember, we had double-digit inflation, double-digit unemployment, double-digit interest rates, Mm -hmm. hostages in Iran, gas lines, an -hmm. unpopular president. It was kind of tough
0: cold war was really raging
3: and and every night on tv at the end of the newscast they would announce how many days the hostages had been held america held Mm -hmm. hostage right that's
0: right that's right and 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 carter had tried the rescue attempt and it had failed
2: i believe that could that's the only single thing that could have changed that election for us and carter
0: i think that's probably right that succeeded that's right at what point you know it's funny uh Mitch Daniels is coming on the podcast here in another uh, few months, and we already had Mark Miles on the podcast. Mark Miles, uh, who ran Quayle's campaign in 1980 after having run uh, Hudnut's reelect as mayor in 79. Do you get the sense, looking back, for those of you who were all involved, that there was little to nothing that could have been done to change the outcome of that election? Yes. That it's just a wave election, and there's just simply nothing you can do in a, in a Republican state in a, in a wave election year.
2: Yeah, I think looking back, it wasn't. Birch
3: Bayer ran ahead of the ticket, way, way ahead, ahead,
2: way ahead.
1: ahead he said yeah. he set records over himself. Was it like four hundred thousand votes?
2: Carter lost by four hundred forty thousand votes. We lost by one hundred sixty thousand votes. That was more an, than an amazing uh, split right. in the tickets. So, in a state where most counties use machines with with straight ticket voting.
3: There, yep. were, there were people, I think, after the election, there were people who said that, that the voters of Indiana didn't mean for Birch Bayh to lose. They meant to send him a message. <laughs> I remember know? you
2: saying that. Actually, I remember <laughs> you saying that right after the election, yeah. and
0: I've quoted that. I agree, I agree with you. At what point did you realize we can't overcome the wave? I mean, was it October, oh, September, no, no. or it was
2: Election Day? <laughs> I mean, we knew things were bad, but we there was— it was still possible. It, it, you know, The bottom kind of fell out the last few days. We had stopped doing our tracking polling at that point. Uh, a lot of people who had, were continuing that saw the bottom drop out right before the election. The reminders of the year of the hostage, the anniversary was right. election day.
0: That's right, November yeah. 4th. That's right. Yeah. Uh,
2: I don't think, I, I think most of us, I, mean, I can count for myself, didn't believe we were going to lose. We knew it was tough, but we thought we were going to win. We didn't think Quayle was a great candidate. We knew it was a bad year, but we had faith, in our. We, we've seen this guy. He, he's good on his feet.
0: And the fact that Quayle was, I would imagine, some certainly more stealthy than an Otis Bowen candidacy would have been, where he would have had a record for eight years as governor. Did that hurt as well? Just harder to hit him because he hadn't really been involved very long? Yeah. That was a terrible year for Democrats. I think Reagan got 489 electoral votes. King Carter got 49. You had multiple senators. Twelve, 12
2: Democratic senators lost their seats that year.
0: Double-digit house uh democrats lose what was what was senator by like that night and the morning after yeah. well
2: i have to tell you it's one of the it's really one of the good memories because uh, we were we were feeling pretty lousy as you might imagine most of us um i had a 13 year career come crashing down that night he uh he he actually stood before the crowd and said you know uh i can't feel bad he said I've I've been given 18 years to do exactly what I want to do. And how many people get that opportunity? And then he thanked the people of Indiana for giving him the opportunity to, to practice law.
0: <laughs>
2: but he literally and in private, I'm telling you, there was no there was nothing. There was none of the rec- no recriminations, no anger, no great sorrow, disappointment, sure. But
0: it was it, it actually was
2: it was really uplifting.
0: Did he ever consider running for anything ever again? No. In fact, when, particularly when
2: Evan started showing his interest in running, Birch strongly felt this is Evan's turn.
0: How proud, as we wind up here, we have just a few more minutes. Let's try to put into words, maybe Nancy, maybe the closest one to do it, how proud Birch Bayh was of Evan, who became his own force and is one of the few people... I think there's three or four people in Indiana history who have won four statewide elections. And Evan Bayh is one of them.
1: Yeah, I think any of us who have been a parent, uh, you know, when, when your child succeeds, uh, you you just can't be prouder. And, uh, and I know he felt that way, too.
2: Because he won his old seat. He won his old seat, yeah.
1: And uh, very frankly, I was
2: one who didn't feel Evan was going to running politics. He had been my roommate in the 80 campaign. I was convinced that that was not with his thing. So I was kind of surprised when he turned around and started running.
0: But yeah, of course he was proud. It was it's your son. He's doing what you've been doing. I just can't imagine what it'd be like to be a United States Senator and then have your son win your seat.
2: It's pretty
1: cool. <laughs> I think that's a good Very word cool. for it. <laughs> Very cool.
0: As, as, we, as we wind up here, I'm going to give each of you just a minute or so to just Maybe reflect one last time on on the man and the career and and his impact both on you and the state. Nancy, go first.
1: Well, I always uh, have admired him for his political courage. Um, uh, it, it was just outstanding, and he would uh, he would he would march into hell for a heavenly cause. Um, but um, after he passed away, I reflected on. Um, the many kindnesses he, he extended to just everyone, you know, to go to Richard Luger's office and, and to welcome him. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times i would sent him emails and say, so-and-so's passed away or, you know, they're in a difficult spot. He would always make time to call, to send a note. Um, and the thing I'm left with now is what an incredibly kind person he always was. Well,
2: you know, um, along those lines, I, I've told this story to a number of friends recently. When my oldest son was four years old, he had open-heart surgery, and the only non-family member who showed up at the hospital was Birch Bay. Those kinds of things are hard to, to fully describe what they mean to you. Look, for, in my life, I mean, the impact was amazing. I'm proud of the association. I'm proud of what he did with his career. Um, and I, I, I've had a couple. I had a couple of occasions with him in the room, to summarize my feelings and I and what I've said was that I began when I began he was my hero he then became my mentor and later he became my friend and
0: he's still all three beautiful Louis.
3: I will tell you that in in uh, I've said this before that uh, you know there's an old saying that no man is a hero to his own valet mm-hmm. um, I I saw birch by up close and personal uh, in some uh, Times that weren't, like, real happy, you know, like... And and uh, I never saw him lose his temper. I never saw him be short with uh, a staff member. Um, the relationship between uh, the, the power structure between a member of Congress and his staff or her staff is vast. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. the... Labor laws do not apply to staff, con- <laughs> con- congressional staff members, you know, and, and no uh, overtime pay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. No overtime pay. And you are completely at the pleasure of, of, uh, this, the member. And, uh, I never saw Birch Bayh be anything but kind and decent, uh, to, to his staff and, um, all three of us have been in D.C. All three of us, you know, were uh, on congressional staffs and uh, and everybody, all the staff people knew who were the who were the members of Congress who were mean mm-hmm. uh, to their staffs. Uh, never, never Birch Bayh.
0: Nancy Pappas, Bob Laymeyer, Louis Mayhern join us today to talk about the remarkable career of Senator Birch Bayh and. Um, the only thing I can add in terms of a coda is uh, someone who yanked his kid out of school so that we could go to the Luger Remembrance Memorial Service together, because I told my son, Andrew, I said, you need to be there, was the multiple mentions of and expressions of condolences from the Luger family and the Luger Memorial attendees to the By family. Thank all of you for being here today. I'm really very honored. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at That's robert at veteranstrategies.com.